service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Pete Rose are insane. He had more hits than any Major League Baseball player who ever set foot on a field. More at-bats, more singles, more games played, more 200-hit seasons. The list goes on and on. He earned all these records the same way he earned legions of fans in his hometown of Cincinnati and beyond because of the way he played. Pete Rose only had one speed. Full-on hustle. Pedal to the metal earning him the well-deserved nickname, Charlie Hustle. Above all else, he wanted to win, but he desired to win more than baseball games. His desire to win was a compulsion that would lead to secrets, lies, betrayals, and one of the most dramatic shifts in popular opinion in all of sports history. Pete Rose wasn't simply involved in some of the greatest moments in sports. Pete Rose was some of the greatest moments in sports. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, That wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Big Red Hustle MK1. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights from Major League Baseball to a broadcast of the New York Yankees-Minnesota Twins game when pitcher Dave Rigetti beat Whitey Ford's record for the most appearances in the fabled pinstripes. And why would I play you that particular slice of lefty cheese could I afford it? Because that was one of the biggest moments in sports on July 19, 1990. And that was the day Pete Rose was sentenced to federal prison for tax evasion, a curveball that would render all his hustles and all of his wins meaningless. On this episode, pedal to the metal, winning at any cost, lefty cheese and Charlie Hustle himself, Pete Rose. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season two, Sportsland. Pete Rose was used to people looking at him. He didn't mind. In fact, he liked the fuss people made about him. The photos, the conversations, the autographs, and the phone numbers. All he ever wanted, though, was to play baseball. 
If people wanted to make a big deal out of him for being great at the one thing he ever wanted, well, that was fine, wasn't it? Except that wasn't true. He wanted more than one thing. First, he wanted to make it to the big leagues to play for his hometown Cincinnati Reds, the team his dad used to take him to see when he was a kid, which he did. Then he wanted to win Rookie of the Year, which he did. Then he wanted to win batting titles, and again, he did. And of course, he wanted to win World Series rings, so he went on and won three of them. And he took it even further and won a World Series MVP trophy to go along with his 1973 National League MVP trophy. But Pete Rose wasn't satisfied. He kept playing, kept hitting, kept winning. And by the end of his playing days, he had played more games, had more at-bats, and had the most seasons with 200 hits or more than any other player in the history of the sport. But it still wasn't enough. And now, now everyone was looking at him, but not like usual. Not people smiling and nodding and wanting to be friends with him, wanting to tell him how great he was. Now they were all looking at him while he sat in the holding area, waiting his turn to get processed into prison. Marion, Illinois, July, 1990. Guards walked past Pete Rose and smirked. Other prisoners knew who he was. Of course they did. He was the most famous guy in there. The Hit King, 4,256 hits, one of the greatest ball players of all time, despite everything they said about him when he was starting out. And they said he couldn't run, couldn't throw, couldn't switch hit, couldn't turn a double play. Fuck them all. Pete Rose would show them, and he did. A voice barked out his name. He turned his head. Get up, the guard said. You're going to the doctor. He followed the guard down the long hallway. Fluorescence crackled overhead. The guard opened the door with a smirk still on his face. Batter up, the guard said. Pete stepped inside, and the prison doctor told him to strip. So he did. He had no shame. He was used to being naked around other guys in the clubhouse, and being naked around women, at home and on the road. Bend over and cough, the doctor said, pulling on a set of rubber gloves. No one told him there would be a body cavity search. As the doctor did his thing back there, Pete thought to himself, this was bad, but no matter what happens, it couldn't get any worse. But bad could get worse. Bad could always get worse. New inmates got temporary sleeping quarters before they were assigned a permanent bed. Pete's cot just happened to be right next to the bathroom. The lights stayed on all night, but that wasn't the worst thing. The worst thing, that was the toilets flushing all night and that fucking smell. Pete Rose, the all-time hit king, reduced to this. He laid there on his cot and he could feel metal springs poking through his thin mattress. What if he didn't sleep the entire time he was inside? It hadn't sounded too bad when he was sentenced, five months. The judge let him off easy for cheating on his taxes. Hell, five months was less than the length of a baseball season. And he knew how fast baseball seasons went. Get down to spring training and the next thing you knew was October. But it wouldn't go fast if he couldn't get any sleep. He couldn't just lie there and listen to other men using the toilet all night. So he did the only thing he could do. He thought back. Spring, 1963. Pete Rose had made it. Starting second baseman for the Cincinnati Reds, the first of many positions he'd handily play over the years. He always knew he would. And his dad, Big P, always knew he would too. But no one else believed him, no matter how hard he played. He was used to their skepticism. It pissed him off, lit a fire under his ass. It was fuel. Like in high school, he loved to play football too. How could he not? He'd grown up watching his dad play in local beer leagues. Big Pete always took him along, 
Whether he was playing baseball or football, Little Pete ran bats out to the players or ladles of water after plays on the gridiron. But mostly, he watched, or more accurately, he absorbed like a sponge. He absorbed his dad's work ethic, how he never missed a day of work in his life, back and forth to the bank every day. Big Pete climbed as high as he could up the corporate ladder without going to college, made the most of himself without a fancy degree. He toiled, and because of all of his hard work, Big Pete was a winner, and winning was the most important thing. The Major League veterans all thought Pete was just a rube, a hayseed, a hot dog. Whitey Ford and Mickey Mantle, two of the most famous players in baseball at the time, New York Yankees both, both players that Pete looked up to and respected. They made fun of Pete. There goes old Charlie Hustle, they said to the press, smirks on their faces. They didn't give what they said a second thought. Whitey Ford and Mickey Mantle didn't realize how what they had said pissed Pete off, and they stoked the fire that was already lit under his ass. And as a result, Pete Rose won over and over again. He made it to the All-Star team 17 times. He won a Golden Glove on the field. He won batting titles. He was the only player to play at least 500 games at five different positions. In 1978, he had a hitting streak that went for 44 games, just 13 games away from breaking the all-time record set by Joe DiMaggio some 37 years before. That same year, Pete crossed a major milestone when he logged 3,000 hits. Only 12 guys before him had done it. 3,000 hits. Pete Rose was living his dream, his destiny, but winning begets more winning. Winning is a drug. Pete Rose couldn't help but chase that high. And pretty soon, he needed to win more than just baseball games. In 1980, San Francisco, Tommy Giosa felt the sweat bead at the top of his brow as he approached the boarding gate at San Francisco International Airport. He sensed his paranoia creeping in. He thought he was being watched by one of the haggard itinerants keeping the uncomfortable plastic seats in the waiting area warm, like they knew what he was doing. He knew he wasn't technically doing anything wrong, but the eyes following his every move made him nervous all the same. Tommy was nervous because of what he was carrying in his right hand, a large duffel bag. The thing felt like it was loaded with bricks, but this wasn't Tommy's first rodeo. He knew what was really inside the bag, and it wasn't bricks. He knew the contents of that bag when it was first handed to him by a representative of Mizuno, the Japanese sporting goods company. He didn't even have to ask. Mizuno was good for it. Tommy had been told he could take them at their word, He'd been told he could take Mizuno at their word by the one other person on the planet who knew what was inside of the duffel bag. And that person was waiting for Tommy back in Cincinnati, Pete Rose. The flight attendant at the gate who tore Tommy's ticket asked if he would rather check his bag. No fucking way. The bag was sitting on Tommy's lap all the way back to Ohio. It was the most precious of cargo. Pete told Tommy to never take his eyes off of it. Once he was inside his assigned seat and buckled up, Tommy unzipped the duffel to take a quick peek inside, and it was just like Pete had said. $50,000, cold hard cash, endorsement money, under the counter and untaxable. Pete called it stew. Pete Rose had sent his friend, Tommy Giosa, out west to collect the stew and bring it back home. 
Tommy knew exactly what to do with it when he got back to Cincinnati. First, he'd roll the cash into $10,000 bundles. Then he'd bring it down to the basement of the condo he shared with Pete, pop open the removable ceiling panels and stuff it up inside with all the other cash. And when Pete got the hankering to place some action, Tommy would go back down cellar, pop open another ceiling panel, reach up for a roll of stew and place a bet. In 1980, Pete Rose found himself without a father and a wife. Pete's father, Harry Francis Rose, AKA Big Pete, had died of a massive heart attack in 1970. 10 years later, Pete's first wife, Carolyn, left him after she became fed up with his perennial infidelity and myopic pursuit of winning at all costs. But despite the losses in his personal life, Pete kept on finding new ways to win. And many of those new ways of winning involved Pete's friend, Tommy Giosa. Pete met Tommy Giosa back in 1977. Tommy's community college baseball team was staying in the same hotel as the Reds during spring training. Tommy met a little kid with a baseball glove by the pool and played catch with him. And that kid was Pete Rose's kid. Pete liked the way Tommy treated his son. Tommy even reminded Pete of himself, a small guy no one believed in. Pete and Carolyn asked Tommy to come live with them to help take care of Junior. And Tommy couldn't believe it. He'd grown up in a tiny apartment in New Bedford, Massachusetts, always poor, always struggling. And here he was, staying with one of the best ball players in the world. Tommy loved Pete cut his hair just like him, did whatever Pete asked. He ran money for Pete's bets to bookies. He picked up and dropped off Pete's girlfriends, juggling, they called it. Tommy hung around so much that people thought he was Pete's illegitimate son. After Carolyn left, Pete and Tommy got the condo at the Chateau Lakes Complex in Cincinnati, where Tommy oversaw the stew that padded the removable ceiling panels in the basement. At first, the bets were small, but soon Pete raised the stakes. He told Tommy to find a new bookie, one that wouldn't take any minimum bets less than two grand. It simply wasn't enough for Pete to win. He had to win big. Even in 1985, at 44 years old, Pete Rose still had to win at any cost. He was now the manager of his beloved Cincinnati Reds. But despite his age, he put himself in the lineup as a player simply so that he could break the final record that had eluded him so far, Ty Cobb's all-time hit total. It was also around this time that Pete got Tommy alone inside the clubhouse and showed off a special bat. Look at this hole, Tommy, Pete said. Tommy narrowed his eyes and looked at the tiny hole in the side of the baseball bat. Check it out, Pete said, motioning to the bat's interior. Cork. Tommy's eyes went wide. He knew what a corked bat was. It was illegal is what it was. Any bat that was tampered with was illegal under the rules of Major League Baseball. But Tommy also knew that players had tampered with bats for decades. Drilling a hole in the bat, sticking in some cork, and sealing it back up was an old trick in baseball. And it gave the bat a little extra pep when it connected with the ball. If done right, no one would be the wiser that the bat was corked. Wise wasn't the word Tommy would use to describe this move. But what did he know? Pete was the boss. But, Tommy responded, what the hell would happen if the bat broke? Pete smiled. Well, I guess there'd be fucking cork all over the place. Soon after, on September 11th, 1985, Pete got the big one, the one that would leave no doubt that he was the best. Hit number 4,192. Pete Rose had beat Ty Cobb's record. He was the hit king. But as he stood on first base for five long minutes as fireworks exploded in the sky above and the crowd at Cincinnati's Riverfront Stadium gave him a standing O for the record books, Pete Rose wasn't thinking about hits. He wasn't even thinking about baseball. 
He was thinking about the 100 grand he had divvied up in tight little 10 grand bundles inside the removable ceiling panels of his condo's basement. He was thinking about how that amount of money wouldn't come close to covering the bets he wanted to place and the debts he had to pay. He was thinking about other ways in which he could convince Tommy to help him get what he wanted and what he needed. Some serious action, some serious wins. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Nineteen eighty-seven, Cincinnati, Ohio, Riverfront Stadium. Pete Rose stepped out from the Reds' home dugout and pretended he was getting a closer look at his team. He was the manager, after all. It was a fairly standard move for a manager. Pete acted like he needed to make a connection with his players give a mental check-in, show some emotional support. He spit on the ground, touched his fingers to his arm, pulled down on the brim of his cap. But Pete didn't give a shit about his players at that moment. He didn't even know if there were one or two outs in the inning. Pete was looking for the two guys sitting behind home plate. He found them red as a fastball, sailed past the batter, and the umpire called the strike. Pete didn't even know if his team was batting or not, because Pete's mind was somewhere else entirely. One of the guys behind home plate was flashing hand signs at Pete. Pete wanted to see fingers up. He did not want to see thumbs pointing down. Pete ran his own fingers of his right hand between the knuckles of his left, not to send a signal back, but because he was nervous as fuck. Pete had hooked these two guys up with season tickets, real sweet seats, but their purpose wasn't to watch the game like any other Reds fan. Their purpose was to let Pete know via hand signals whether or not he was ahead or behind in bets he'd placed on basketball and football games that evening. Fingers up, told him how many bets he was ahead on. Thumbs down, told him he was screwed. And this evening, it was all thumbs down. Pete was way behind. And the more Pete Rose bet on sports in the 1980s, the less he won. And the less he won, the smaller the bulges inside the ceiling panels of his condo's basement became. And Pete's friend, Tommy Giosa, was there as Pete wagered more and more money every week. Pete's losses kept getting worse. He didn't want people to know how bad it was, especially his financial advisor and his accountant. So Pete came up with an idea, a new way in which Tommy could help. He sat Tommy down with two pads of paper and two pens. Here's how you do my signature, he said to Tommy. See how when I sign it with the T in my name, see how it comes up, do it like that. Tommy tried it. No, Pete said, you're dragging the pen as you do that first E. Go easy with it, and then come up into the T. Tommy worked on it for a while until he got it. Pete was already selling signed memorabilia for cash. With Tommy signing too, there would be more money coming in, and more money meant that he'd be able to make more bets, and bet bigger, 50 grand a week sometimes. But bigger bets required bigger connections, and bigger connections often came with bigger risk, and with bigger risk came bigger consequences. Sometimes Pete ran his bets through the Bruno Scarfo crime family in Philly. Sometimes via Dominic Basso, who was tight with the Chicago outfit and Windy City wise guys like Donald the Wizard Angelini and large Dom Cortina. Sometimes he placed action with a Staten Island bookie named Richard Big Val Troy, who had the ear of the Bonanno family, the Colombo family, and the Genovese family. And every time Pete would get in too deep with one bookie, he'd tell Tommy to switch to a new bookie and the cycle would start all over again. And by the late 80s, Pete was in serious debt. He owed 200 large to Big Val alone. He needed to right the ship before the ship fucking capsized. So he put some big money on the Super Bowl in college basketball. 
but he bet wrong, and he lost hard. And the bookie who was owed that particular debt didn't give two shits that the guy who owed it was the hit king. Pete heard it from a guy who heard it from a guy who heard it from another guy that this bookie was none too pleased. In fact, he had a message for Charlie Hustle, and he hustled the message through a series of go-to guys so that he could retain his anonymity. And the message was this. If the debt was not paid immediately, he would burn Pete Rose's fucking house to the ground. And if Pete Rose's kid was lucky enough to not be inside the house when it was raised by the lick of hot flames, then he would find the kid himself and break his goddamn legs. Pete Rose freaked the fuck out. And then Pete hustled like he'd never hustled before. He signed more photos, signed more jerseys, more balls. He had Tommy sign more photos, more jerseys, more balls, just like he taught him. Pete was able to scrounge up cash to pay off the debt and get the bookie off his back. But soon after, Pete had someone else on his back. And this time, it wouldn't be so easy to shake them off. May, 1988, Cincinnati. Pete Rose's Reds versus the New York Mets. Top of the ninth. Game tied up, 5-5. Mets were at the plate. Howard Johnson represented the go-ahead run on second base. Mets outfielder Mookie Wilson hit a sharp ground ball to red shortstop Barry Larkin, who quickly threw the ball to first base. The throw was a bit wide and caused the first baseman to come off the bag slightly to complete the catch. The play was nervously close. The first base umpire made a late call, and his call was that Mookie Wilson was safe. Thanks to Mookie's hit and the umpire's call, Howard Johnson was able to safely make it home and score what would be the winning run for the Mets. As the Reds' manager, Pete Rose was bullshit. He tore out of the dugout like a man possessed and within seconds was in the first base umpire's face. Pete yelled and bobbled his head, and when the yelling and bobbling didn't seem like they were enough, he shoved the ump. In the heat of the moment, Pete thought the umpire had poked his face and thus thought his shove was merely a retaliatory move, and the ump immediately tossed Pete from the game and the fans at Riverfront Stadium took the side of their beloved Pete Rose and threw trash on the field to protest the decision. Major League Baseball did not take the side of Pete Rose. He was fined $10,000 for the incident, which pissed Pete off because he could have used that money for a bet. And to add insult to injury, the National League president at the time, Bart Giamatti, gave Pete the longest suspension any player had earned since 1947 when Brooklyn Dodgers manager Leo DeRocher earned a one-year suspension for gambling. Pete thought it was a disgrace. He'd been in love with baseball since he was a boy. He wouldn't let some ivory tower egghead from Yale show him up. But Pete was wrong about this, just like Pete had been wrong about so many other things. Bart Giamatti would do more than show Pete Rose up. He would ruin everything Pete Rose had worked so hard to accomplish. July, 1990, Marion Federal Prison. Pete Rose laid on his bunk and stared at the ceiling. All night long, inmates lined up to use the toilets nearby, and the smell, the sound, he couldn't sleep. He was in the doghouse in so many ways. He thought of Tommy Giosa, who was doing his own time for transporting coke, the bonehead, not to mention for keeping Pete's gambling win secret from the IRS which directly led to the reason why Pete was now serving five months behind bars himself. It started when Pete got Tommy a spring training tryout with the Orioles, and Tommy almost made it to the majors. 
but he was cut from the team right before the season started. They said Tommy was too little. So Tommy did steroids, and then Tommy started dealing steroids. Tommy became a different person. He looked like a different person. His weight jumped from 165 to 204, and he had moods, bad moods, like the time he jumped out of his car at a red light and smashed out some guy's driver's side window for no reason. His hunches were bad too, like the one where he thought driving cocaine around for a couple of guys he met at the Gold's gym was no more risky than driving around Pete's gambling wins, and that particular hunch landed him in jail. Pete's hunches seemed to be limited to a baseball diamond, and he couldn't win betting on horses or on football. The only thing he knew, really knew, was baseball. So he started making some bets on the Reds to win. But what was wrong with that? What better way to show how much he believed in his team than to put money on them? It's not like he was betting against his team, taking a fall. And people who didn't play the game would never understand Pete reasoned. How his desire to win was all-consuming. Pete wanted so badly to win that he'd broken the cardinal rule. Don't bet on baseball. He could never admit that he did it. He was so ashamed, thinking about what his dad, Big Pete, would say. How little Pete's need to win had turned into gambling on baseball. Tommy got a job managing a Gold's gym, but he drove around a Porsche he bought with his steroids money. Talked too loud. Eventually, the law noticed, and then they noticed Pete. Pete's five months inside Marion Federal Prison was due to income tax evasion for the memorabilia he sold but didn't report to the IRS. The stuff both he and Tommy signed. When they let him out in 1991, Pete did his community service. He did his time, took his lumps. He thought he was in the clear. He thought the worst was behind him. That wasn't the worst of it. He was far from in the clear. Mad Egghead Bart Giamatti, the National League president who'd given Pete the ridiculously long suspension, took over as baseball commissioner and convinced Pete to sign an agreement. So right before he had gone to prison, Pete signed. And that agreement he signed permanently banned Pete Rose from baseball, with a caveat that he could apply for reinstatement in a year. Pete was compelled to sign because it seemed like a fair arrangement. Some big players had the same thing happen to them, like Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle. Those guys had been permanently banned from baseball for working in the gambling industry, for greeting people at casinos for money. But they both got reinstated, and no one ever talked about their suspension, just their numbers. Pete was sure that the same thing would happen to him. Except Giamatti died of a massive heart attack eight days after he put Pete on the eligibility list. And then, after Pete got out of prison, the baseball writers changed the rules. Any player on the ineligible list wouldn't be allowed on the Baseball Hall of Fame ballot. Pete would have been a sure bet for the Baseball Hall of Fame, baseball's highest honor. After all, he had some of the best stats of any player in history, had more hits, hell, getting 3,000 pretty much guaranteed admission, and he had almost 1,300 more than that. But the baseball writers didn't want Pete Rose to be in the Hall of Fame. Neither did some of the players, even some of his teammates because it was now common knowledge that Pete Rose had bet on baseball. He'd bet on his own team. To be fair, he never bet on them to lose, but it didn't matter. He bet on baseball. Pete denied the bets. Pete denied everything until he didn't. In 2004, Pete Rose wrote a book, My Prison Without Bars, and he admitted it. He apologized for it. He hoped it would make things better, maybe get him back on the ballot and into the Baseball Hall of Fame. It didn't. The fans only got more upset at him. They had believed in Pete for years. They had defended him when he shoved the first base umpire during the game with the Mets, and then defended him again when he denied the allegations that he had broken that cardinal rule. 
Cincinnati sports fans could defend an awful lot, but they couldn't defend a liar. And they were right, and he knew it. If there was anything worse than letting down the memory of his father, it was letting down the fans, who had cheered for him every night because of how he played, hard, with hustle. But without his dad, and without the fans, the game, the game that Pete Rose loved to win, was over. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show of guys.